listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, join me in Matthew chapter 21 today. Matthew chapter 21. The Triumphs of Caesar uh, are a series of nine large paintings uh, created by the Italian Renaissance artist Andrea Mantegna uh, between 1484 and 1492. They depict a triumphal military parade celebrating Julius Caesar's victory over the area of France and Belgium, which took place between 58 and 50 BC. Uh, If you look at those paintings... You'll find that first there are trumpeters uh, leading the parade with wagons loaded with spoils, the spoils of war and and conquest. Next there is is the gold and the silver coins uh, which had had been captured. Then there are crowns that have been given to Caesar by cities and allies and the army itself as a reward for his bravery. Uh, Then there are white oxen uh, followed by elephants. Uh, And after them came Julius Caesar himself on a chariot embellished with uh, various designs, wearing a crown of gold, precious stones, dressed in a purple toga embroidered with gold stars. Uh, He holds in his hand uh, a scepter of ivory and a laurel branch, which was always a symbol of victory. Riding in the same chariot with him were boys and girls on either side of him, young men on horses who were uh, his relatives uh, nearby. Following uh, him were those who had served him in the war as uh, either personal aides or armor bearers in some cases. And then finally, his army followed after them. Must have been quite a sight as this victory parade marched into the center of Rome for all the people to cheer Caesar and his great victory for the Roman Empire. After all, leaders of the world, they like to display their glory by showing people how powerful they are. We still see images much like that today. In the same way that humility is the opposite of pride, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is very different from Caesar's parade. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of what we know as Passion Week or Holy Week. Much of the Gospels are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, and, and, and I think sometimes we, we miss this. But, but I, I kind of looked at it, and I, I realized that in John's Gospel... It comes in chapter 12 of John's 21 chapters, so nearly 50% of John's gospel devoted to this segment of time. While in Matthew, the last week of Jesus' life commences here in chapter 21, where we are this morning, of Matthew's 28 chapters, so roughly 25%. In Mark's gospel, Palm Sunday is recorded in chapter 11 of Mark's 16 chapters, so over 30%. Approximately 30% of the four Gospels are devoted to detailing the last week of Jesus' life. So with so much devoted to this one week in Jesus' life, I hope that you will allow me for a few minutes this morning to introduce you to the importance of one day, in particular, in the life of Jesus, the Messiah. 
We're going to look at Matthew's account. I would always encourage you when you're studying one of the four Gospels that you do it in harmony with the other three Gospels. Understanding that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic Gospels. That means to see the same thing. John, a little bit different. But as you study the Gospels, one Gospel writer will often give you some details that another Gospel might not. In fact, there are some harmonies of the gospel out there. A lot of study Bibles have a harmony of the gospels in the, in the study notes section. But this morning, we're going to focus our attention here on Matthew chapter 21, looking together at verses 1 through 9 on this Palm Sunday. Verse 1 says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You need to understand that in these crowds of people, that had assembled there in Jerusalem on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there were different people in the crowd who had different priorities, different viewpoints on exactly what is happening here. Uh, It's not unlike uh, other parades. And so in this sense, you would have had those who would be considered friends of Jesus. Uh, They would have, in some ways, been ambivalent to Jesus' ministry, but uh, would have looked at him through uh, the lens of of maybe friendly to this new movement, these people of the way, this, this revolutionary leader. You had those who were fans of Jesus. I mean, when you understand the context of what's happening here, Jesus had just done something really, really significant performed what many would argue is his most significant miracle. He had just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty big deal. And so naturally, uh, that was headline news in that day. And so undoubtedly, there were some people who were hearing these things that Jesus had been doing, what he had done in raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And so they were certainly fans of Jesus. There were also, in the crowds there that day, some foes of Jesus, mainly made up of the religious leaders of the day, They were always the ones looking down their hypocritical noses at Jesus and his ministry. They were the ones who were always throwing the flag on Jesus because he violated their man-made traditions and and extra-biblical rules and laws and those kinds of things. And so you've got those who were foes of Jesus. They would have been incredibly jealous at the attention he was getting. And then, in the mix, you would have also had some followers of Jesus. So this morning, as we look at this rather familiar account to most of us, I want you to stop and consider where you would fall in these different groups of people that had gathered in Jerusalem on that day. Let's consider for just a moment the background of what is happening here. I mean, Jesus, on multiple occasions, had come into Jerusalem. That wasn't anything new. So why on this particular day did he get rock star treatment, celebrity-type treatment? 
Well, the background is this. The little village of Bethphage was about two miles east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples to, uh, to get the colt of a donkey for him to ride into the city from there. This was in fulfillment of the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse number 9, that Matthew references here. In fulfillment of that. And so we have this prophecy of Jesus' humility. We see the word Zion there. Zion, it's, it's the Hebrew word for fortress. It was the southwest hill of Jerusalem on which the original fortress was built. The name came to stand not only, of course, for the fortress itself, but also for the hill on which the fortress stood. In the Old Testament, the name Zion was used some 150 times, mostly in the Psalms and in the prophets, in reference to the city of Jerusalem. So when you see this terminology here, daughter of Zion, it's referring to the Jews primarily who lived in the city. We also see that he was coming into Jerusalem in a humble way. Humble, gentle. The Greek word comes from the word easy. gives us the the word easy. The word was used of of a gentle breeze or a gentle voice. You see, humility is the opposite of self assertiveness. It's the opposite of self-interest. It's the opposite of self-absorption. Jason did a great job a couple of weeks ago of talking about the subject of, of pride versus humility. The bottom line is this. It's not so much that we should think less of ourselves, but we should think of ourselves less. And so you have in this sort of a juxtaposition kind of thing here, you've got the image that uh, we see in those nine paintings of Caesar. And then you have the triumphal entry of Jesus. Undoubtedly, the way in which he came into Jerusalem would have been a little bit of a disappointment to some of those who had gathered there that day. They wouldn't have expected their king, the one who was going to overthrow Roman rule, to come in on a colt of a donkey. Are you kidding me? Hey, what is this? I can remember a number of years ago, uh, as a student even, going down to, to Dallas because Prince Charles was coming to Big D. I stood there with my classmates. We'd gathered in front of the Dallas City Hall, and in comes this entourage of about eight jade green jaguars. And out of one of those jaguars stepped Prince Charles. Ooh. It was a big deal. I mean, it was a big deal. There was, you know, a lot of fanfare that day. A lot of people had gathered because Prince Charles was in town. If anybody could have demanded that kind of treatment, if anybody could have demanded pomp and circumstance and pageantry and all of those things, it was the Lord Jesus. But that's not how he came. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 11, verse number 29, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. For I'm gentle and lowly, humble in heart. That's why Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he said it this way, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus presented himself as a humble king who came to serve. Matthew 20, 28 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
So he was going to enter Jerusalem in a way that showed the people that he was the promised Messiah, which the Old Testament scriptures had predicted and prophesied, and the people had been waiting for for so long. But then here in the text, we also see this incredible praise of his majesty, honor. The people recognized the significance that Jesus was presenting himself as their king, and they took the opportunity to honor him. They spread their cloaks on the road as a sign of respect for him. Most of the people took off what would have really been like their outer garment because they, they had one on, and it was an easy way for them to honor Jesus. It was a sign that they were acknowledging him as their king. This wouldn't have been an especially new thing or a novel thing in that day. 2 Kings chapter 9 tells us that the people had put their cloaks on the steps of the palace in Samaria, blew the trumpet, and proclaimed Jehu as king. This is a fairly common thing. It's much like uh, the, the, the terminology that we use today. We rolled out the red carpet. That's essentially what they were attempting to do. Then they cut branches from the trees. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that they were palm branches, but John does. In John chapter 12, verse 13 tells us they were palm branches. They were a symbol of celebration as a result of a military victory. They were also used as a sign to welcome a new king. When Simon the Maccabee had driven Syrian forces out of Jerusalem in 164 B.C., we're told that he was greeted with waving palm branches. So there's honor, and then certainly there's praise. The excitement among the crowd around Jesus grew until they broke out in praise, quoting from Psalm chapter 118, which was used to greet those who had come to celebrate festivals like Passover. So those who lived in the city or didn't have very far to travel to get to the city of Jerusalem for these festivals, they would typically form what amounted to a welcoming committee during the seasons of these various festivals. And, and, and so this is what they would, uh, one of the things that they would use. Uh, these, this terminology that you see here from Psalm chapter 118. Hosea, it's a compound Hebrew word that means save and now. Save and now. Psalm 118 verse 25 says, Save now, we pray, O Lord. And again, this psalm was one that would have been sung at the Passover festival. John Calvin wrote this. He said, Prayers for the promised redemption were generally presented in these words. The word Hosanna expressed their desire to be delivered by God at the present time as they longed for the promised Messiah to arrive and reign over them. So over the years, the word Hosanna has come to be used as an exclamation of praise, such as our expression, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's only used six times in the New Testament, all by the people here on Palm Sunday, as they celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Now you've got to understand, again, these varying perspectives. There would have been those there that day who would have been pretty excited, pretty fired up, because they wanted Jesus to be this political leader. They wanted Jesus to come into town. They wanted him to overthrow Roman rule, set up this earthly kingdom of which they would be a part, and it would be like, finally. But that's not really the focus of the Lord. In fact, if you study the context of this whole section of Scripture, the, the last days and, and hours, even weeks in the life of Jesus, he's doing a lot of teaching using parables and various things to teach them about the coming, what? Kingdom of God. Very different from an earthly kingdom that some of these people were hoping for, wishing for, longing for. 
This terminology, son of David, here, it was a messianic title which acknowledged that he would come from the family line of King David according to the promise that God had made with David that one of his sons would reign over the nation of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 7. With that, they were saying things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It came from the next verse, actually, in Psalm chapter 118. He who comes... That terminology was a a recognized messianic title as the people were proclaiming Christ as their promised Messiah, their coming king. And so it wouldn't have been uncommon for them to refer regularly to he who comes, he who comes, the expected one, long expected one kind of idea. Hosanna in the highest was giving praise to God now that their promised Messiah was there with them in the person of Jesus. God is to be praised by sending us, uh, for sending us the Messiah. Now understand this, sinful mankind did not deserve it. There's not a person in this room today, not a person watching online who can say, well, I deserve the grace of God. That's why we call it the gift of salvation. If you think for a moment that you've earned it or you're earning it, you are, you are desperately wrong. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So God be praised. God in his mercy and his grace so loved us that he sent his son to be our savior and our king. So as we take this text, a familiar text to many of us, as we've uh, looked at Palm Sunday and all that it holds... Maybe God would allow us for just a few moments here to have our hearts set aflame, uh, find a, a, a fervent stirring within us to welcome the king today. And as we do that, where do you fall in the different groups of people found there that day in Jerusalem? Maybe you're one who would say today, I'm a fan of Jesus. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Big fan of Jesus. Not much evidence in your life necessarily that you're following him, but you're a fan. Hey, there's some who would say, well, I'm, I certainly am a friend of Jesus. I mean, I don't want to be his enemy. I mean, that would make me like a demon or something, right? So I, I want to say that I'm a friend of Jesus. But really in that, what you're saying is I want Jesus to kind of like be a consultant in my life, maybe kind of have him on retainer, but I want to keep him in that spot until I really need him. And then I'll call him off the bench. Jesus has no desire to serve in an advisory role in your life in that sense. Where it's only as you need him and, and you call his number that he, he's, he's called into the, to, to, to the day-to-day activities of your life. There may be some who would say, I'm here this morning, I'll be honest with you, I'm a foe, I'm not a believer. And I doubt, preacher, that you can convince me this morning. Maybe you're watching online and that's where you are today. I'm a foe of Jesus. So give it your best shot. I just don't believe My hope and prayer is that each one of us today can leave here and be fully devoted followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why our mission statement says that we want to lead people on a life-transforming journey to become fully devoted fans of Jesus. Is that what we want? No. Friendly toward Jesus? No. To develop fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. And so for just a few moments from the text, by way of application, I want us to to draw out, to glean some essential ingredients or even indications of real worship. 
If we're all completely honest, we would have to admit that there have been times, maybe more often than we would like to admit, that we have played the part We've gone through the motions of worship. We've attended a service. We've sat through a sermon. We've, 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 we've mouthed the words to the songs. We've, we've done all the right things. We've stood when we're instructed to stand, and we sit when we're instructed to sit, and you know, all those kinds of things. But, but it, it's not really authentic. You can sit in a service like this, and you can be thinking about things a million miles away. Maybe you've come here this morning, and you're consumed with some of the pressures of life. Maybe you're watching this morning and you'd say, man, it just my financial situation right now is desperate and that's just consuming my thinking. I don't know what it is that's keeping you from being a full-on authentic worshiper of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords today, but it's my prayer that you can leave here today with a renewed commitment to that. And so what, what are some indications that we see, some ingredients of real worship? Well, number one, you get excited. You get excited. And I'm not just talking about a, a manufactured emotionalism. Okay? This, this is not just some glorified pep rally in the sense that we just want to get you all stirred up uh, just uh, in an emotional sense, but it really uh, take, has little substantive uh, work in your life. It needs to be much more than that. Okay, hear the words of the psalmist. Psalm 118. Verses 1 through 4, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Can you say that with me today? His steadfast love endures forever. Let's try it again with a little excitement this time. His steadfast love endures forever. Even in the midst of a, of, of a, of a crazy culture, the one in which we live. I'm not sure if we can withstand much more craziness in our world. I mean, things look like they're just coming off the rail almost every day, it seems. And some of you are finding yourself more discouraged every day and more despondent every day. Well, check this out. In the midst of all that, his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Now, I get it. We're not all wired quite the same way. And there may be some sitting here today going, Pastor, just don't get too much excitement, okay? You Jesus people are a little embarrassing. Let me tell you something. We have erred, particularly in our Baptist churches, for far too long on cold and boring. And I'm saying that to myself. That if the boat leans to the side of heat and fervor, it won't be the worst thing that could happen, okay? I'm not afraid of cooling down a few zealots as much as I am warming up the corpses. That, that, that's what keeps me up at night, okay? Because we get excited about a lot of stuff, don't we? I do. Man, I can get excited about some fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies coming out of the oven, amen? I was watching the last little bit of... Uh, a basketball game last night, Oral Roberts in Arkansas. Man, those last few minutes were exciting. Um, you know, it was a close game much of the way, and as the game, you know, was nearing the end, it was especially close. And if you watch those last few minutes, you know that there was like 3.1 seconds on the clock. Oral Roberts is inbounding the ball from, from their end. They've got to go the length of the court and try to get off a shot in those final seconds to possibly win the game. Arkansas is up by two. 
And their inbounds play, it works. The guy somehow travels the length of the court in 3.1 seconds. He gets off a good shot. The guy who had probably hit that shot many, many times. It looked like a good shot when it left his hands. But it hit the rim and bounced out. And you watched, even in a, in a limited number of people in the arena there, you, you saw those who were Arkansas fans just absolutely go crazy. They're elated. They're excited. They're fired up because their team just advanced to the Elite Eight. How exciting is that? And on the other hand, you saw those Oral Roberts fans as they hung their heads, disappointed. Hey, I can get excited about some stuff. But here's the thing. Don't you think it's time for us to really get excited about the things that are most important? That are most important? Our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ our time in the word, our time to gather with God's people as we have this morning. Let's get excited about the right things. You get excited. I want you to take special note that the disciples here, I mean, there's an excitement that's going on uh, among those that are there, but I want you to notice that also there's another characteristic of authentic worship, and that is you are obedient. That's why James writes, and he says, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. So authentic worship is characterized by obedience to what you've heard. As God convicts you through his word and by his Holy Spirit, you say, I need to do better here. I need to to cast off this and I need to take on this. I need to to spend time in his word more than I do. I need to have a different set of priorities. You're committed to not just hearing the word and being better informed, as we often say, but to being transformed by the word of God. I hope you leave here each week thinking there's something I need to do with what I just heard. You're obedient. Note here that the disciples obeyed Jesus. Jesus says, go, and they went. Jesus says, speak, and they spoke. Jesus says, take, and they took. (laughs) Part of the reason this celebration took place was because his his disciples obeyed him. Now, I look at this and I think, "This, this was incredible. Imagine this. Imagine if I came to a couple of our deacons and I said, guys... I got a neighbor up the street who has a really cool truck that I would really like to have. So what I want you to do is I want you to go take my neighbor's truck. And if he has anything to say about it, you just tell him, Pastor Mike needs your truck. And he's going to be cool with it. (laughs) I mean, that's essentially what you see here. I mean, this is incredible. Understand this. Disobedience hinders the progress of the gospel. Disobedience dampens the tenor of worship and praise. So many people gather for worship with no real need or thought of obeying him, of it making a difference in your life. And you look at these men, these these followers of Jesus, they have reverence for Jesus' every word. They obey immediately and cheerfully. Again, this this is different from consultant Jesus. I'm going to grab a little nugget every day. Maybe it'll... You know, remember, Jesus did not come into this world to just make good people better, to make your life on this earth better. He came to make dead people alive, to truly transform our lives. That's why scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that happens through obedience. It's a characteristic of authentic worship. I want you to notice number three, you give gladly. You give gladly. The owners of the colt and the donkey quickly surrender their possession for Jesus to enter into the city. 
Even the disciples distributed or contributed their cloaks, piled them on the back of the, the colt for Jesus to sit upon. Didn't have much to give, but what they did, they, they gave. And so you think about it. How can there be a celebration when no one spreads their cloaks? How can there be a celebration when no one gives up their donkey or their colt? A, a generous spirit marks all real worship. And I'm not just talking about our financial resources. That's a part of it. But what about our time? and our influence, and our talents. There are so many things in Scripture that we are called upon to steward for God's glory and the advancement of His kingdom. I don't know what that may look like for you. I don't know what it is today that maybe you're holding back. Maybe you're gifted in a particular area, and you, you, you just kind of keep it covered up. But authentic worship, genuine worship, is characterized by giving gladly, giving generously. So you get excited, you're obedient, you give gladly. Number four, you praise publicly. You praise publicly. Real worship is marked by public praise. I'm always leery of anyone who calls themselves a Christian, but they want to keep it private. I mean, that would be like me almost 32 years ago in a snowy evening in Erie, Pennsylvania, Asking my sweet wife, Christy, to marry me. I mean, there's just a, a lot of emotion, as you can imagine. It was just an amazing evening for us. It didn't go as I planned because there was an incredible snowstorm that didn't allow us to go down to the, the park along the shores of Lake Erie that I planned to go to. And so instead, this is super romantic, ladies. Check this out. I asked her to marry me in the front seat of my car in a Red Lobster parking lot. <laughs> Pretty impressive, right? I, I know. But how weird would it have been in that moment for me to, to give her this ring and to say, but here's the thing. I love you more than any other human being, and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But here's the thing. If you agree to marry me, we got to keep it private. Can't tell anyone. Got to keep it hush-hush. <laughs> how weird would that be? She would think I'd lost my mind. Well, the same thing is true for those who profess with their mouths to be followers of Jesus Christ, and yet they're content to keep it private. Some of you have been working with the same people for months and years, and some of those people don't even know that you're a follower of Jesus. And I'm not suggesting you've got to be some kind of off-the-chart, like crazy weird person who just... I'm talking about they should know that Jesus Christ has made a difference in your life. If they don't, something's wrong. Again, hear the words of the psalmist. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, some of you are gifted to do that in ways that others of us are not. Some of you can lead in worship. Uh, you got other, you're gifted in other ways that others of us are not. And I'm so grateful for that. It's one of the things I love about the body of Christ, the, the church. God puts all these different people with unique giftings and passions and all those things together to make much of him, to glorify him. But we're to do it publicly. And so that naturally leads to number five, we witness to others. We witness to others. When real worship Real awakening comes to God's people. It always stirs people to witness. Well, Christy and I were engaged. If we'd have had social media back in that day, don't you know we'd have been blowing up some people's news feed, right? 
We'd have been posting some pics. She said, yes. We've got a big day coming. We, we would have been, this is, you know, backcourt. We didn't do the save the date thing like they do now, right? Like, but if they, we, we would have sent those. We would have, I mean, we wanted to let our friends and family, everybody to know how excited we were. We, we wanted to, to, to witness to others of that. The same thing happens with us. Notice, there were those who said the, 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 the foes of Jesus, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. <laughs> but among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Are you a faithful witness? Are you willing at every opportunity to give public witness to the faithfulness of God in your life and the saving work of Jesus Christ? On June the 2nd, 1953, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary was crowned Queen Elizabeth II in Westminster Abbey. The coronation ceremony, as you can imagine, some of you have, have seen it. It followed all the tradition and the pageantry that you would expect for such an important event. But just before the crown was placed on her head, the Archbishop of Canterbury cried out to all those seated to the north, Sirs, I present to you the undoubted queen of the realm. Are you willing to do her homage? And there was a resounding positive response. And then turning to the south, he repeated that same request. And again, there was a resounding response in the affirmative. And then he turned to the east and then finally to the west, doing the exact same thing, making that same request. I present to you the undoubted queen of the realm. Are you willing to do her homage? And every time he received a resounding positive response. And it wasn't until all four directions had responded that they would accept her as their queen. The crown was placed on her head. So the pomp and the pageantry of the coronation service certainly was impressive. But she is only a constitutional monarch. Even though she is the undoubted queen of the realm, she is fundamentally a queen in name only. Well, I'm going to show you this morning that the one who rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey is not just a king in name only. He is the undoubted king of kings and lord of lords. World leaders have risen and they've fallen. And they continue to rise and they fall. For all of human history, and still, he remains the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, the only thinkable relationship between us and God is one of full lordship on his part and complete submission on our part. I know we sometimes say, and we mean well when we say it, that we've made Jesus king. 
we don't make Jesus king. <laughs> no, we submit to the one who is the king. My obedience, my lack of obedience doesn't determine his kingship. He is the undoubted king of kings and Lord of lords. The question today is, am I just a friend, a foe, a fan, or am I truly a follower of my king? Is my life characterized by full-on submission to him and his will and his authority? So if you would join me in these final few moments with your head bowed and your eyes closed today. I asked you at the beginning of this morning's message to consider the various groups of people, the different perspectives that would have been found on that Palm Sunday so long ago. If you're completely honest in these final few moments that we're together today, can you truthfully say, honestly say, you are a full-on follower of Jesus Christ? We often say it this way. He, if he's not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. So maybe there's a particular area of your life that you have yet to surrender to him. Maybe it is your finances. Maybe it's your family, your kids. Maybe it's your possessions. Maybe it's your individual giftedness, your, your passions. Will you fully surrender to him today as the king that he is? Maybe some here today, maybe someone watching online that would say, nah, I, I'm still a foe if I'm completely honest. I have a marginal interest, but I'm not yet a believer that Jesus Christ is anything more than a good teacher. Maybe I'll acknowledge him as a prophet, but that's about as far as I go. Certainly can't believe that he was God in the flesh. Maybe there's some here today, some watching online, who would say, I'm a fan of Jesus. I'm friendly when it relates to Jesus and his teachings. I'm not opposed to him. But I'm pretty content to just leave him at arm's length. When I really need him, I want him there to be a consultant. But I've never really submitted to him as Lord, as my king. So my hope and prayer is that we can all do that today. If you're uncertain about your relationship with God, I'd love to speak to you at the close of the service today. I'd love to show you from the Word of God how you can know that you're in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast. So if you're on this frustrating treadmill of trying to earn your salvation, 
It's not until you realize once and for all, you can't save yourself, that you will find the rest that Jesus talked about there in Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He's not just talking about physical exhaustion. He's talking about spiritual exhaustion. Come to me, all you who labor, trying to earn it yourself, trying to be good enough, and I'll give you rest. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together here. I thank you for the kind attention of each one here today, those who are watching online with us. Lord, it's my prayer that each one of us would leave here today committed, determined to be fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here today that is uncertain about their relationship with you, never really submitted to your leadership in their lives, your lordship in their lives, I pray that today, once and for all, they would raise the white flag of surrender, simply saying, I can't save myself. I'm trusting you as Savior and Lord. Lord, as we close our time together today, may we now lift our voices in exclaiming, proclaiming publicly, great is our Lord. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.